Good morning, everyone. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Um, It's kind of the heroes of the faith chapter. Uh, And that's where we'll kind of be sitting this morning in our series. And if you remember, the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews, Israelites, people of the Old Testament that have decided against their culture, against even their religious leaders, that Jesus truly is the Messiah. They have considered Jesus. Hebrews 3.1, the author is writing to say, Therefore, holy brothers, we're not made holy because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done, and companions in a heavenly calling, that yes, we live this life in this world, but there's something more that God is doing. There's an eternity awaiting humanity. Consider Jesus, the author writes. And the reason the author writes this is because these Hebrew people, these Israelites, had decided that Jesus was the Messiah, but now it was getting really hard for them. The religious leaders of their day, the the political leaders of their day, the economic leaders of their day were saying, you know what, if you just won't believe in that and just do what we ask you to do, then your life will be fine. But if you do believe in that, then we're going to come after you. And so there was this idea of compromise that these Hebrew people were going back and kind of doing the things of the Old Testament that they didn't have to do anymore, not because they did it as an act of worship, but because they did it as an act of fear. And can I just tell you that fear is the mantra of our day? I mean, I've only been alive 46 years. I don't remember like the 50s duck and cover, right? When you practiced in school, if you've ever seen those videos, where you practice duck and cover, when you saw the light flash of the atomic bomb, you were supposed to go under your desk and that was going to save you. Anyway, like, I mean, think about how crazy that is. But, but I mean, th- that's what they did in the 50s. That's what they practiced. There was a real fear of like, this could be the end. And yet, I don't know that our problems are nearly as big as the problems they faced. They faced polio in those days. They faced disease and sickness. They barely had antibiotics at that point. And yet, the people of that generation were not nearly as afraid of everything as we are. Sometimes you'll go to places in the world like Ecuador, and they have more joy and less fear, and yet they have more problems and more issues than you'll find we have. And so, the writer of Hebrews is trying to get these people to see that you've got to consider Jesus in every area of your life. And instead of living by fear, you have to live by God and his word, by who he is. And Jesus is called the word. And so he's written this word, this letter, this scripture to the people saying, you've got to stop and consider Jesus in what you're doing. And that's where we find ourselves. Last week, after Almost nine and a half, ten and a half chapters of the author of Hebrews laying out his case that Jesus really is God, that Jesus really is the Son of God, that Jesus really is the Messiah of the whole Old Testament, that everything in creation is about, which the writer of Hebrews for ten chapters is like pounding home over and over again, and it's worth giving your life to him. He comes to that chapter we looked at last week, and he gives us some let us. He says, now in light of everything I've written, everything I've told you, you see, the writer of Hebrews doesn't tell them, listen, 
doesn't tell them do all this stuff to be right with God. He shows them everything God has done to make a people for himself. Everything he's done to say, I love you, I care about you, I want you in my family, but there's a decision you have to make. You have to consider some things. That doesn't mean doing works. That's why the writer of Hebrews waits 10 chapters to kind of give some commands. 10 chapters. He lays out his case and now he says, now let us draw near. Let us hold on. Let us be concerned for one another, which people don't want to do today. And these are exact things. We're drawing away from one another. We are not holding on to the things of God and the things that we know are true of the past. We're trying to throw all those off to find a new way to do things, and it's not working well. And we're not concerned about the things of God, and we're not concerned so much about people as we are about ourselves. And all of that mess drives us to fear. It drives us to be very, very afraid. Because we're trying to keep everything. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, let us do these things. And after he gives us some commands, some things to think about, he says the only way you're going to be able to do what I just told you, in light of who God is, in light of who Jesus is, the only way you're going to be able to do it is by faith. By faith. Now faith is a word that is thrown around today, right? Listen, the whole world lives on faith. You don't believe me, right? Think about it. How many of you looked for the inspection sticker on your chair before you sat down today? Anybody? Anybody come in and be like, look for, oh, look, there is one on there. Look for the inspection sticker and like, okay, it's been inspected by whoever number five is. I can trust him, right? No, you sat down in it because you saw other people sitting in those same chairs. Well, it held that guy, and he's way bigger than me, right? So I can sit in this thing. And you sat down in it. You just, by faith, were like, plop, and sat down in your chair. You see, we can't not live by faith. Everything in our world is to declare that there's something bigger than us. There's something we can't control. And there's someone trying to get our attention to say, I'm here, listen to me. That's the whole world. When you go to a stop sign, you have faith that the guy driving the other direction is going to actually believe that he has a license guaranteed by the government and follow the rules he signed off on that he would follow. If he decides that day, red lights mean green to me, and we start driving that way, what's going to happen? Your children may be dead in your car because, well, hey, I decided today red means green. And that's just what I believe today. No, but by faith, you went through the light, probably still looking if you're a good defensive driver, right? To see if the other guy's going to stop. But by faith, you're like, I'm going through the intersection. Here we go, Lord. And you don't go through every intersection like panic. Like, oh, God, I made it through. Like, you wouldn't be able to live a life like that. You would be miserable. And yet, in so many other areas of our lives, that's how we live. We live in such fear and such condemnation, and such confusion. And the author of Hebrews says this right at the beginning of the book. He says, now faith is the reality. He defines for us very clearly what biblical faith is. And we looked at this briefly last week. He says, now faith is the reality. See, faith is reality. See, we think faith is not reality. Faith is when you actually kick off reality and then live your life 
That's actually how you're supposed, that's real reality, what you can see, what you can touch. You can't, you have no idea what the driver in the other car, Mr. Inspector 5, had in his heart or what day he was having when he inspected your chair. He could have been having a really bad day at work and been like, I don't give a rip, die. I mean, that's how he could have inspected the chair because he was just having a bad day. And yet we all, all the time, we make these decisions of faith based on what is seen. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, there has been a plethora of people going back thousands of years. There have been people in your midst who have lived their lives by faith and you can trust it. You can trust in the God they trusted in. And he says it's the real reality because there is a false reality constantly being pushed on us. Why? Because there are people that want you to believe their reality so they can use you. And God says, I don't want you to believe a false reality. I want you to believe the real deal, that the whole world is engineered by faith. By faith. And every day you get up by faith. And you go to bed at night by faith. Some of you live in places, right? Many of you students who go to bed at night by faith in apartment complexes, and you're thinking, I don't know what's going to happen when I sleep tonight. I don't know what party is going to be going on. What smoke's going to travel into my room and how I'm going to feel in the morning? By faith. And yet faith is this thing today that we say, well, that's what you have when you don't have real things, real matter. Do you realize that most scientific discoveries start by faith? They believe a theory. They come up with a thesis and then they go about trying to, by faith, believe that thesis, and they take the evidence where it goes. That's how science is supposed to be done. It's actually a Christian endeavor. Most science, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, Christians were the ones that generated and pushed the idea of scientific discovery because they believed in a God that was behind the scenes working, that you don't just see what you see. There may be other things behind the scenes, Seen, and we keep finding how deep that goes. We look at the cell or the atom, we go, oh, that's simple, and then it gets more complex and more complex. And the more we learn, the more we're like, oh, we don't even know that. And so the deeper we go, we're not simplifying our world. It's getting more and more complex to show us, do you realize how much you live on faith on a daily basis? And the author of Hebrews is getting ready to lay this out, and he says, look, it's the reality of what is hoped for. What do you hope for? What do you hope for? I mean, that's really essential because whatever you hope for is going to be the thing that you chase after. And God is like, I have come from heaven to earth to give you hope and I want you to chase after me all the way to the end because I'm worth it. And if you ask yourself what you truly hope for, most people who are mentally healthy, they long for relationships. They hope deep down inside that someone will love them, that someone will care about them, that there's something more than themselves and someone will love them in spite of themselves deep down inside. That's what children, that's everyone, that's that thing in us. We don't live just on instinct like the animals we think and reason. We write. The animals don't write. We write because we want to be remembered. And the author of Hebrews is laying this out and he says, look, what is hoped for? And he says, the proof of what is not seen. The proof of what is not seen. 
a virus going around. Have you seen COVID floating through the air? Have you seen it? Then why do you believe it's there? Because you've seen the results of it. I've done two COVID funerals. I've seen the results of it. I've seen the devastation of disease. Just, but I don't see germs, so I don't think they're real. Though they're real. Should we live in complete fear and scared to death of them? No, you see, because I'm someone who hopes in another eternity, so I'm not afraid to reach out to my neighbor. Used to, Christians were the ones dying of all the sicknesses because they were caring for the sick. Now Christians are the ones protecting themselves the most sometimes instead of looking to how to care for the sick. A number of years ago, Christians farmed out medical care to an institution. And we wonder why our medicine is so bad now sometimes. And why it's based on profits instead of people. The church gave that up. We decided to farm that out because then we could build buildings and run programs and do other things and medical care. And I mean, that's really costly to your life and to your bottom line on your budget. Go do the history if you think I'm wrong. And we as Christians are supposed to be the ones that go to people and tell them the reality of what faith is, to give people a hope, and then to tell them, listen, our ancestors going all the way back won God's approval by faith. You do not win God's approval by your works. You can't. You will exhaust yourself and you will be miserable. And this is the way all relationships work. You know what? Go home and tell your kids this. Hey, kids, here's here's how it's going to work in our house. As long as you do everything I tell you to do, I'll love you. If you mess up, you're gone. See how that relationship goes. See how your kids feel in that environment. They'll be miserable, and you'll be miserable eventually. Oh, and when you get to the end of your life, and you can't work anymore, and you need someone to care for you, they're not going to be there, because you taught them works. You taught them pleasure. You taught them to work and get what you want. So why would I want to go back and take care of mom and dad? They're in my way. We just need to euthanize them and get them out of the way so I can pursue what they taught me to pursue. See, we don't think through how this works and how God said the ancestors before you won approval by God. By The reason you're here is probably because there's someone in your past going all the way back that chose to have children. That is an act of faith. Right? They chose to say, we're going to bring children into the world. A woman decided to let her body do crazy things to itself so you could be born. I don't, I've seen that process three times. I want no part of it. I'm grateful that I can't do that. It wrecks them. Sometimes forever. You, you never recover from it. Ever again. And yet, There's this desire to bring life. There's this this desire not to live by facts and stats, but there's got to be something more. And the Bible says exactly. That's what our ancestors understood. So he goes on, he says, by faith, that's trust and belief, we understand that the universe was created by God's command so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. (laughs) We have Adam's. This was written before any science was done. This was written before anybody knew about how the material world worked and the hidden scenes behind. And God says, oh, by the way, someday you're going to discover that there's a whole world behind matter. There's a whole thing that he's in charge of. 
Someday you're going to see that the entire world is made by things you can't see. No, I only believe in what I can see. What I, you, no, you don't. None of us do. And the author of Hebrews says we have to understand that there is a God that's created everything by his command. In other words, by his word. He spoke things into existence. I mean, and it was there. Because he's God. That's how he does things. It's why we have language and the animals don't. We've been given that God image that can speak, that can write, that can pass down from generations something for other generations to trust in. That's how we're designed by God. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, remember, because here's what these Hebrew and Israelites were doing. They had come to Jesus by faith, believing that he was the Messiah, that he was raised from the dead. He was who he said he was because they looked at the lives of those that said they were Christians. Most of these people didn't actually see Jesus raised from the dead. They heard about it. And they had to decide, do I believe that or do I believe this? And they decided, if I want a Messiah, that's the one I want. One that would die for me, that would love me, that would tell me he's going to come back for me. But he's asking me to serve others the way he served. That's the kind of guy I can trust. He's not coming with force to make me do what he wants me to do. He's coming and asking me to have faith. And now what they're doing is they're going back to works. They're going back to saying, well, yeah, I, I got Jesus over here, but I still need to do all these things. I need to make all these people happy. And I, Nope, you don't. You've got to trust him. You know, you may wonder this morning, is this faith stuff worth it? Is what I can't see really worth it? Is it worth giving my life to something I can't see? You have, you have a mask on right now. You've been running around six feet away from people. Trusting what scientists and others have been telling us for almost two years. Going on two years. And you haven't seen COVID for yourself. How many of you have looked at the COVID disease under a microscope? But by faith, you're living your life today. You came here today. God just asks us to have a little bit more faith in him than that. He goes on and he says this. And here's how he starts out. Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Remember, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, after they'd sinned and been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, which is where we get the DNA of sin from, that we all have that sinful DNA in us now that's been passed down. And it says, by faith, Abel was approved as a righteous man. It's not the sacrifice that Abel offered, because Cain and Abel brought different sacrifices. It wasn't the sacrifice that they offered that was the issue, it was the heart. And it says, God approved of Abel's gifts, even though he's still dead. In other words, God was pleased with Abel, God loved Abel, but Abel still died. Because we're under a curse. And you don't get out alive and you don't get everything you want. And Abel was killed by his brother Cain. And the Bible says here, Abel still speaks today through his faith in God. You see, Cain was jealous Cain looked at Abel's sacrifice, and instead of asking God, hey God, why do you approve of Abel's sacrifice? Because God actually came to Cain and talked to him. 
It was probably a theophany possibly in the Bible. A theophany is when Jesus appeared in the Old Testament. Came to Cain and said to him, hey, I don't like the sacrifice you're making. I, I approve of Abel's. And instead of Cain saying, oh, I'm going to go ask Abel what he's doing, ask him why God's approved, or even asking God, hey God, why do you approve of that and not me? Cain just got frustrated and angry and started killing people, first his brother. You ever been there? You read something hard in scripture, you read something that hits you, and you realize God is telling you to die to something in your life. Man, if I believe this, I'm going to have to die to this, I'm going to have to give up to this, and you just get frustrated and angry? Instead of coming to God by faith, coming to another believer by faith like Abel and saying, help me. I don't know how to honor God. See, Cain couldn't do that. And so Abel was approved because Abel just came to God by faith. I just, I just want a relationship with you. My mom and dad blew it. And I want a right relationship with you, God, even though my mom and dad blew it. And Cain was trying to raise his crops and give God all of his works. Look at all I did, God. Now I'm going to give you a little bit back. God's like, that's not what I'm looking for, Cain. I'm looking for a love relationship, a hope by faith. Goes on to say, by faith, Enoch was taken away. So he did not experience death. And he was not to be found because God took him away. For prior to his removal, he was approved just like Abel was approved, since he had pleased God. Now, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him, which is, remember what he said, let us draw near just a chapter before? The one that draws near to him must believe that he exists, that God exists, that Jesus exists, must consider Jesus and rewards those who seek him. If you're constantly feeling like you're seeking something, what does that mean? you know you don't fully have it. You see, the Bible presents this already, but not yet. That Jesus has come, he's died, he paid for our sins, past, present, and future already, but not yet. And so we draw near to him, and we place our hope in him, and we do these things because we believe what God is going to do. So there's this guy, Enoch. Who is Enoch? Enoch is actually Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, who kind of replaced Abel, came in. They had a son named Seth. Seth came, uh, was born, and then Seth is from, Enoch is from the line of Seth. Okay, if you go back, look at Genesis 5.22. It says, after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. So the author of Hebrews is going all the way back to Genesis to prove his point, the first book of the Bible. And he's saying, you think that the people in the Old Testament were saved because they did all these right things and sacrifices. No, they weren't. They were saved by faith by a hope, by a surrender to seeking God because there's nothing more I want than you. That's what they were saved by. And so Enoch is this guy that he had so much faith. Listen, he had so much faith. God's like, you know what? I'm not gonna make you stay in this suffering world so long. Come on. Ah, there are days I long for that. There are days when I'm like, Lord, I'm ready when you are. Anytime you wanna take me. Seriously. I'm ready. And Enoch, God just took him. He didn't even die. God just like, 
It's like something out of the end game, right? Avengers. Like they just disappear. Snap. And the five stones and he's gone, right? And we look at that as, oh, that's so tragic. Enoch finally got to be with God fully. How is that tragic? That's what my faith longs for. And it says he was approved by God because he kept clinging to that hope. And you wonder, how could people live that long in the Old Testament? That's always a question when you read something from Genesis. Can I just tell you? Not real sure, but here's what I do know. If you've got a perfect human being that was created, and there's not a bunch of sin and disease yet in the world, then the more sin and disease and mutations that you experience from radiation, from other things, from being perfect, your life expectancy goes down. You live here, your life expectancy is longer. You go live in Chernobyl, it's going to decrease because of the radiation. So, so, so it's possible that people could live that long when they were like more perfect. And then as you watch Genesis, people's ages drop more and more. Methuselah, who's listed here, was the oldest man never lived. Enoch got taken out. And you think to yourself, well, do I want to take, man, I'd like to live 900 years. Then I could see all my great, 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 however, I don't know how many, grandchildren. Enoch was so faithful, he was ready to go because he had known he'd been faithful and he had raised up the next generation and he was ready. He had been seeking God the whole time. So when God said, hey, will you want to come? Yeah, I'm ready. That's supposed to be what faith looks like. He goes on, it says, Methuselah had Lamech and he named him Noah. Genesis 5, this one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Because if you remember, God said to Adam and Eve, I'm throwing you out of the garden and you're going to work by the sweat and toil of your brow and you're going to get thorns and thistles. It's going to be hard. And so God, through Enoch's faithfulness, brings generations later Noah, who was a faithful man of God. And Noah was the one that was going to solve the cursed ground problem. Have you guys ever grown a garden? Anybody ever tried to do a garden in here? I, we have. Three times. It's bad. Did not go well. My wife finally was ready to have strawberries, and I forgot about the strawberries and plowed them under to help her with the garden. That's how gardening goes for us. Right? She'd waited three years. If you ask her about it, she will give you that look that Becca just had. Becca's eyes were like, you did what? I'm like, that's, I still live that to this day. You see, the ground is still cursed. But through Noah came the one that would give us a new ground, a new heaven, a new earth, Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says Noah knew this. Look at what it says. It says, by faith, Noah, after he had been warned, or after he was warned about what was not, what, <laughs> What was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, not earthly fear. Noah wasn't motivated by this idea that I've got to fix everything and a flood's coming. He was motivated by I want to trust God in what God has said. He built an ark, a boat, to deliver his family. And by faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah wasn't made right because he built a boat. Noah was made right because he built a boat in a desert, probably taking over 125 years to get it done. I'm just trying to get through like 75 years, right? 
And Noah built this boat in the desert. If you had a relative that was building a boat in the desert, what would be the family conversations at Thanksgiving and Christmas be like for your relative John who's building a boat in the desert or in an arid land? Like they're not building it on the water? Be like, have you ever seen the show Evan Almighty? Anybody seen it? You know, the, yeah, that's, yeah. This guy's building a boat by faith. The Bible even says that no rain had ever happened yet. In Genesis, it said it never rained. So not only is Noah building a boat where there's no water, he's actually building a boat without people who've ever seen rain before. And you think, well, how is that possible? We know scientifically that at one point the Earth's entire global temperature was a constant and that there were ferns everywhere from pole to pole. How? Well, the Bible says there was a different atmosphere at one time. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense in the fossil record. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Scientists can't answer that. Our Bible answers it. God said there was no rain yet. Now he's building a boat and they don't even know what rain. Where's this water coming from, Noah? I don't know. God told me water's coming. Day one, week one, year one, year 50, year 75. Trying to convince your kids to build with you. Try to convince your kids to build with you a boat where there's no water and you've never seen rain. That's amazing, right? If you have children, it's hard to convince them to like, like mow the yard. And they're building with him most of his life, this boat. And Noah was doing it by faith. He was trusting God and said, God, if that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. And if I'm ridiculed for it and I'm condemned, and what happened was everyone that was condemning Noah, you know what happened when the flood came and God shut the door? They were condemned. They rejected the ark of God that could have saved them for 125 years. And when God shut the door, it was over. And the Bible says that consider Jesus, it's the same way. Jesus gave his body as our ark, our access to God. And if we will enter into him, if we will trust him, then when the fire comes the next time, we will be saved, the Bible says. And we do that by faith. By faith. And that's how Noah was saved. It goes on in Hebrews and says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. That is how I drive everywhere. True story. I am terrible with directions. If I ever give you directions, you are desperate. I will give you an address to put into your Google Maps or your iPhone, but if, you, if you're asking me for directions, most of the time I just look and go, just ask them. I, I don't even try anymore. I get lost everywhere. But I can tell you that we lived this verse by faith. When we came to Bloomington, when God called us to come here to plant a church, we left where we were at to come here, and we had no place to live. We had a moving truck full of stuff and a hotel night the first night and a possible place we could live, but I had not confirmed it. And I said, God, if this is where you want us to go, and it wasn't just me coming here, like I'm Mr. Rogue, I'm gonna go. There were people that were confirming that, other churches, other 
friends that, that had prayed for us. It was like, we believe this is what God wants you to do. We had submitted ourselves to the body to come here. It wasn't we were just coming here on our own and we're going to make something happen. By faith, we were trusting the body of Christ to send us to Bloomington, but we did not have our act together, kind of like Abraham, who moved his stuff, packed up his family, and went because God said, I'm promising you something better than the life you think and the place you live now. Will you trust me? Now, does God call everyone to leave? Well, look at the next part. By faith, he stayed. (laughs) Wait, do I go or do I stay? Do I stay or do I go, right? I mean, that song stuck in your head now. I just thought I'd throw that out there. It was what stuck in my head this morning. Isabel was talking about being someone who's sent out, right, in her testimony. Sent out. Abraham was sent out by God. Do I stay as a foreigner? Well, Abraham was willing to stay as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. It says that Abraham wasn't wanting a land for himself right in that moment. He was believing that God would do it. Abraham didn't try to build a city. He stayed living in a tent his whole life that we know of. Believing that God was going to be the one that would deliver him from the people and the surroundings around him. That's what we do every day. We live our lives in these temporary tents, Paul says in the New Testament. And I trust God with this temporary tent that I live in, that someday he's going to make something permanent, but this ain't it. And I long for the day when I'm out of this body and in a new body as God has promised. He goes on and talks about Abraham, who believed God, who committed to the covenant God had for him by faith. And he says there was someone else, Sarah, his wife, that by faith even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, she was 90. A 90-year-old having a kid? Okay. Received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. And that process wasn't neat. Sarah laughed at God. She didn't fully believe by faith that God would do what he did. She even encouraged her husband to commit adultery with his handmaid so that they might have an heir because Sarah didn't believe God's promise fully. So you may be struggling to believe this morning. You may be struggling to believe God's promise. You may have done some stupid things like Sarah asked Abraham to do and Abraham like an idiot agreed to. But God still uses these folks when he's writing about the heroes of the faith because these folks kept coming back around to trusting God and saying, God, if you say it, I'll believe it. I'm sorry I didn't believe it, but I will now. I will trust you. That's the message of Sarah. It says, therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven, as innumerable as the grains of sands on the seashore. All major, three major religions of the world trace their lineage back to Abraham. Billions and billions of people are from the line of Abraham and declare it in our world. Ishmael, which was his adulterous affair, and Isaac are still at war with one another. That's Islam and Christianity because God said all the way back in Genesis, those two are not going to get along unless Ishmael surrenders that Isaac is the promised child. And Ishmael's descendants will not surrender that Isaac is the promised child by faith. Some are. There's a revival happening in Iran, by the way. 
The Iranian Christians are exploding right now and being persecuted for it. And here you have that from one man, and you might say, well, that's hard to believe that from one man. Well, I just explained that to you, but do you realize science says this too, that we're all traced back to a common ancestor? So when God said this, it would have been hard for people to like, no way we all come from one. Like there were so many deities and each deity competed to create their version of humanity. And then all the humans war together on the side of which deity they are. And our science today tells us that we are all descendants of a common ancestor. Thank you, science, for proving God right again by faith that he said a long time ago. He goes on and he says this. These all died in faith without hearing or having received the promises. They didn't receive what they were believing in. They didn't receive or see the promises fully. And then it says, but they saw them from a distance. They greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. That's what we're called to do as Christians. This is just my temporary home. Then it goes on, it says, now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. This is not my home. I can't create a good enough home. No one else can create a good enough home for me, so I don't need to blame those in the past or use those in the future. God is my home. He is everything. I trust in him. And how he wants me to live in this world is in a way that tells people, this is not your home. God is your home. But can I just tell you, we keep chasing a homeland here. That's why America was even founded, where people fleeing to maybe create a homeland. God uses that. He has throughout scripture. I'm not saying he doesn't. They came here by faith. But this isn't our home. And intuitively, you know that. Intuitively, you're like, what happens after I die? And maybe you're young and you don't think about that right now. There'll come a day when you think about that. I've been in a lot of hospital rooms. I've held a lot of hands. I've sat with a lot of people. And when you come to the end of your life and you come to the end of it, man, you realize, man, I hope there's something more. Even the hardest atheists, when they come down to the end, there is a brokenness that happens that is just overwhelming. He goes on and he says, look at this. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have an opportunity to return, but, now, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Can I just tell you, I cling to that verse. I cling to the verse that, where Jesus says, I have gone to prepare a place for you, and where I'm going, I will come back and get you and take you there. It's the picture of marriage. It's the picture of the bride, that the, the bridegroom goes and he buys a home. He saves up. He, he, he is a person worthy of marriage. He, he asks for a commitment from the father, from the family. There's a commitment made and he gets ready to receive the bride into his home, the home he's made. That's exactly the picture that we have in Scripture. Revelation 21 gives us a great picture of this from the Apostle Paul. As he finishes the last book of the Bible, he says this, Then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. By the way, science says that the heavens and earth will pass away. Our galaxy someday will collide into another galaxy, and it will no longer be the way the heavens are now. Our earth someday will run out of its ability, will get hit by an asteroid, the sun will burn out, and it will not be the way it is now. It's a promise. You can't get around it. 
The Bible said that a long time ago. Then it goes on and it says, and trust me, that wasn't accepted science way back when. They didn't understand science. They didn't understand that things were winding down. They thought everything was getting better. The sun would burn forever. They worshiped the sun as a god. And we know that that sun isn't worth being worshiped because it's dying off. It goes on and it says, look at this. I also saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. In other words, she got ready for the moment. She was ready to see her husband. She had been waiting for him to come get her. And that's what we're supposed to do as a church, as a body of believers, is to prepare ourselves for the bridegroom that's coming so we're ready when he comes. Not trying to please everybody at the wedding. Not trying to keep all the families happy so that they can all get along. I am consumed by the bridegroom. And he goes on. He says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. That's what all these people in the past longed for was to get back to Adam and Eve, back to the relationship where God walked with them in the garden, that the ground wasn't cursed anymore. And John's saying, I'm telling you, this day's coming. And the writer of Hebrews says, I'm telling you, all the people of the past believed this. Then the one seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. Write it down. See, God wants us to be confident that this is true. Hebrews 11 goes on and says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He was given the promise of a child, and God said, would you sacrifice the most valuable thing you have, your own son, and Abraham was confused because God's people didn't do animals or didn't, they did animal sacrifice, not human sacrifice. And so Abraham's like, okay, that's it. He even had Isaac carry the wood for his own death up the mountain. Think about that as a father. I've got to trust God so much. Isaac, you carry the wood. Well, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham told Isaac, God will provide it. He didn't look at Isaac and say, you're the sacrifice, son. I'm killing you today because you drive me nuts. That's not what he said. He said, God will provide the sacrifice. He was believing as they were going up the mountain, as he's watching his son carry the wood for his own fire, as he's going through all of this, he's like, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand why we're doing this because you say not to do this, but I'm going to trust you all the way up the mountain. I'm going to build the altar. I'm going to tie my son up. I'm going to stick him on there. And then he raises the knife and God says, stop, stop. And Abraham looks up and sure enough, God provided a ram and a thicket. It was a test. Do you truly believe in me by faith? Do you believe when things don't make sense, you can keep trusting me and I will will talk to you, I will speak with you? And it says, look at what it says. He received the promise and he was offering his unique son because God offered his son Jesus. The one it has been said about, your seed will be traced through Isaac. Jesus is a descendant directly of Isaac. He considered God to be able, look at this, Able even to raise someone from the dead as an illustration, he received him back. It says, Abraham, even if God didn't provide the ram, Abraham was like, I know if I kill my son, God has said this son will be the promise. And so somehow God will resurrect my son. 
They had never seen a resurrection. They didn't have the story of Jesus. And Abraham was like, I believe God's promise. I believe what he says. I'm going to take his word over everybody else's every time. I'm going to wrestle with why he wants me to do this. He goes on and he says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. If you remember, Jacob actually stole the blessing from Esau. Right? By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. And he worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Isaac was deceived and gave the blessing to Jacob because Jacob's mom knew the blessing was for, for supposed to be for, for uh, Jacob. That was prophesied. Isaac liked Esau better. The Bible tells us that. He wanted Esau to be the promised one. And so when Jacob came in dressed like Esau and put on fur so he could feel the hairiness of his son, when he came in and did all that to deceive, God had already prophesied that that whole mess was going to happen and he sovereignly was going to make it work out. I don't know what mess you're in. I don't know what deceptions you've done. I don't know what you've done, but can I tell you right now by faith, God says you can trust his promises. He even had a guy write it down so we know it. He goes on, he says, by faith, Jacob, when he saw he was dying, Jacob is now out of the promised land. In the story of the Bible, Jacob had to move from the promised land. He had to go to Egypt where Joseph was sold as a slave, right? If you know the story of Joseph and the amazing technicolor dream coat. I mean, the, the coat of many colors. I mean, the long robe, whatever it was, right? Joseph was sold as a slave in Egypt. His life was a disaster, and yet he forgives his brothers and invites them to come to live in Egypt in the famine. And the great thing is, Jacob had to give up the promised land and move to captivity to get the promise. That's the same thing God asked for us. God says, you're going to have to leave chasing this promised land you want and believe that I have one for you. And you're going to have to trust me. Trust me. It's the same thing Jacob said. And as he's dying, he's blessing all of his children. And then he doubly blesses Joseph's children. And it says Jacob worshipped. Can I tell you, that word he worshipped is huge. Because if you read the story of Jacob's life, he is a miserable human being until this moment. He is depressed and miserable all the time. And his sons are miserable with him and they do miserable stuff together. He's got a son that sleeps with one of his quote-unquote wives. He's got a son that sleeps with a, a sister. It, it's a disaster. It is an absolute disaster. And yet he comes to the end of his life when he's on his deathbed. By faith, Jacob worships. And he doesn't even have the promised land anymore. He's a slave in Egypt. Not yet, but he's in Egypt. The, the wrong land. By faith, Joseph as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. Joseph's like, look, y'all had to leave the promised land. I've been away from the promised land even longer than you guys have. Could you carry my bones back with you when you go back there someday? Do you know how long that took? 400 years. How would you like to keep track of somebody's bones for 400 years? 400 years, they're slaves in Egypt crying out to God wondering, 
Is God even real? Does he exist? Does he care about us? Does he even know my plight? Does he know what we've been through, my children have been through, my children's children? Does he even care? And when, when Joseph's ending the near of his, his life, he's like, remember my bones, man, because I know God's going to fulfill his promise. He's going to bring us back. That is faith. He goes on and he says this in Hebrews, by faith after Moses was born, he was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. Again, they didn't fear the king. The king's edict was that every male Israelite, Hebrew child born, was to be killed on sight. As soon as it was born, they were to kill him. And God had a couple of women, a couple of handmaidens who said, we will not do that to God's promised children. And so they made up this story. Amazing how God uses things. They made up this story that said, well, man, these Israelites, they have, women, they have babies so fast, we can't get there in time to kill them. Because, man, they just push them out, whoop, like that. And Pharaoh believed it. He bought it. So they saved Moses, and then they sent Moses down the river in a basket, and he's found by Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter breaks the curse of her own dad by saying, I'm going to take this, dad. I'm going to raise this Israelite boy to be my own. Take that. God still uses that mess. You see, they didn't fear the king's edict. They found a way to honor God in the midst of the king's edict. That's what we're to do today. We don't fear the government. We don't fear all this. We find a way to honor God in the midst of it. We take our stand. We sit down. But we always point back to God by faith, not what we're trying to keep. I wish Christians knew how to do that in our culture. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. In other words, he was a king in the palace, and he gave it up so that he could serve God's people. Now, the way God got him to give it up was not a nice process. He ran for his life because he murdered an Egyptian. It took a little while for God to get him to the point of surrender. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're not fully surrendered yet, but God's still getting you there. Have hope. Keep placing your faith in God that he's going to do it because that's what Moses did. And he was in the wilderness for 40 years waiting. And it says, For he considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since his attention was on the reward. Even Moses believed that there was going to be one that would save him and save the ancestors and save those in the future. And that's why he went through the Exodus. It's why he served God's people, the Bible says. By faith he left Egypt behind not being afraid of the king's anger. Again, king's fear, anger. I'm not going to be afraid of that. For Moses preserved as one who sees him who is invisible. Moses believed in God over Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the most greatest empire ever at that time. Unbelievable power. And Moses is like, you're nothing compared to my God. By faith, he instituted the Passover. That's where God said, you need to kill a lamb and wipe the blood over the doorpost and I will pass over your home and your firstborn son will live. But if you don't put blood over the doorpost, your firstborn son will die. And the reason God did that, hear me out, the reason God did that is because Pharaoh, time after time, 
deity after deity that Egypt worshipped. They worshipped cows, God killed the cows. They worshipped flies, God bring, began, bring flies to, to persecute them. They worshipped the Nile, God turned it to blood. Every time God did away with one of Egypt's idols, they just got more frustrated, more angry, and stuck it in the face of God and his people. And that's what we can do if we're not careful as God tries to deal with the idols in our hearts. And instead, God said, one last time, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you believe you're a God and you believe your son is a God. I don't want to kill your son. I want to kill my son. My son's going to die on behalf of your son. But I need you right now to put some blood on the doorpost to declare that I will die for your son or I'm taking your son. And Pharaoh ignored the warning and his son was killed. See, God is constantly asking us to surrender even the most valuable things by faith. And by faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. And when the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. Can you imagine by faith walking across walls of water? That's got to freak you out. Like at any minute, this could collapse, right? Like this is, I don't like this. There's no other way you're going through And the Egyptians inspected the chair and thought, well, that chair will hold me, so I'm going through too. The problem they had is it wasn't about the water and this parting and all that. The Egyptians weren't going through by faith. They were going through because they trusted in themselves. And it collapsed on them. And we're the same way. If we trust in ourselves, we're going to have a great collapse. Hebrews in verse 32 says, and what more can I say, the writer says. What more can he say? He's got a whole Bible, right? He's just covered like Genesis. He hasn't even gotten. So he goes on. He says, time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign enemies to flight. And all of us together say, that's exactly what I'm looking for in life. That, that's exactly what I'm trusting God for. I want to shut mouths of lions and be in Las Vegas and get paid a lot of money. I, I mean, I want all of that, yes. And then God says, well, some people have that experience. But then he goes on and he says this. Women received their dead. They were raised to life again, some of them. Some were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and in holes all around. And can I tell you, there are Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ today that are dealing with all of that. And we may be on the other side. We may be seeing the Supreme Court make some decisions we like. And it seems like they're shutting some mouths and doing some things. But it may be tomorrow that you're here. And the question is, what do you place your faith in? Are you in it for all the stuff before this? And when God doesn't shut the mouths of lions, I'm out of here? Because when Daniel went to the lion's den, he said, whether the lions eat me or not doesn't matter. I'm not defaming the name of my God. Throw me in the lion's den. 
That is the faith that God looks for. Sometimes he delivers. Sometimes he doesn't. That's not our call. We're to trust him with our very lives because the reality is Daniel was saved from being eaten by the lions, but you want to know what happened to Daniel? He died. He still died. He didn't get resurrected over and over and over again. He's not here walking around over there in the Middle East like saying, hey, I'm Daniel, I'm still here because I obeyed God. Because Daniel believed in a better resurrection, which is why he could be eaten by the lions the first time and not be concerned. Because it doesn't matter. I'm going to be resurrected either way. So you know what? Eat me. Fine. That's incredible faith. It goes on and says this. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. You haven't received what was promised yet. We're still waiting on Jesus to come back to make things new. We just read about that in Revelation. All of, all of the story of God is people waiting from Abel and Adam all the way to the end. We're waiting. And the only reason God hasn't come back yet, he says in Scripture, is because he desires that none would perish, but that many would come to repentance. And that means you listening online, and you in this room right now. He is patiently saying, I'm not done with you yet. You've got some more time. I'm not done with you yet. You've got some more time. I love you. By faith, believe in me. Trust me. Bring me the mess of your life. Because all those people we just read about were a mess. All these were approved since God has provided something better for us so that we would not be made perfect or they would not be made perfect without us. You say, what does that mean? It means God is calling a family together. That God is fulfilling his promises and perfecting his promises through you and through me. It means Abraham in heaven right now, every time someone repents and asks Jesus to come in their, into their heart, the Bible says they are grafted into the covenant of Abraham, and Abraham's in heaven going, yeah, another one. Yes, another one. They're celebrating. We are declaring to the heavens and to our enemies that God is who he says he is at every turn that we trust God by faith and not by sight. In Matthew, I'm going to flash forward through these real quick. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 says this. This is Jesus speaking and he's speaking to the crowds. He says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The person who loves the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. They'll be willing to lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me will find it. You want to know why you have life in America today? Because there were some soldiers that took this verse seriously about America. They may not have taken it seriously about heaven, but because they were willing to lay down their lives and fight on a foreign place as a temporary resident in a foreign land, you get to be in this land. And the Bible says that's exactly the plan God has had from the beginning. And it's why it's a reflection of God's character when countries fight and try to do what they do. It's a reflection of who God is. 
Jesus goes on to say, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Sometimes people persecute you because you're an idiot. You did something stupid. That's, that's on you, right? But Jesus says, if you're following me, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It can be made salty by faith. You come back to God by faith. It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. Galatians, Paul said this, but if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? In other words, if we keep struggling with sin, does that mean God wants us to sin? No, he says, absolutely not. If I rebuild the system I tore down, I showed myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I've died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in this body that's dying, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing. In other words, the author, Paul, who's writing to the Galatians is saying, don't go back to works and trying to earn your way to salvation. It doesn't work. You'll be miserable. Come to God and surrender, just like all the ancestors did. Surrender your life. Give it to him. Believe in something better. Ephesians, Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We are all dead. Every single one of us is going to die. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. It's not works. It's God's gift. Grace is a gift. He says, I offer you forgiveness. I offer you my grace, which passes over your sin, like the Passover we read about. And he says, I offer that if you'll take it. But if you don't, death awaits. He goes on and he says, together with Christ, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens. We have a home in the heavens. Our soldiers come back from America to their home after fighting, after being wounded. He says, you have a home so that in the coming ages, God might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. See, if it's about works, we all boast. I did more than you. and They did more. And Abraham was more righteous than Moses. And Moses was more righteous than David. And God's like, they all got saved by faith through grace, or, through, uh, or by grace through faith, all of them. And that's the only way you can be saved too. For we are his creations, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He says the good works you do will flow out of the recognition of the relationship you have with God. If it's the other way around and you're trying to work and get God to love you, you're just a stalker. God doesn't want stalkers. He wants family members. And family members say, what do you want me to do, Dad? What do you want me to do, Mom? How do we serve one another? And if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, then you know that he's going to look at you and say, here's what I want you to do to serve others. Here's how I want you to give up your life like I surrender my life. As we wrap up, Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. We had a bunch of people run a marathon this past weekend. People in this church ran a half marathon this weekend. 
I think they all finished. Some of them a little bit worse than they wanted to, but I won't name who. Okay. The race that lies before us, keeping your eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. When you finish the race, you sit down typically. I mean, you got to walk it off, but it's like, I'm done, right? And he says, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Look at this. So you won't grow weary and lose heart. When you're running a race and you're chugging along and it's good the first few miles, you're thinking, oh, that's doing pretty well, keeping up. And then the next mile and the next one, and then you pull something and you're like, should I finish this now? I don't know. I mean, I said I was going to finish, but the reason you keep going, you want to know why you keep going? Because you know there's a finish. If they put you in a race and said, we're going to run a race in Indy, and we want everybody to come race, when's it over? We don't know. Just run for a long time. I'm, I'm not in. <laughs> I'm out. God says there is a race that we get to run, and there is an end to it, and he knows the end, and he asks us to trust him, to believe that we can, by faith, place our faith and consider Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, have you considered Jesus? Have you considered that the world is designed by faith, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen? And God is looking at you and saying, you can come to me by faith. You may not know anything to do. You may not know anything about Christianity. You may not understand anything about God yet. That's fine. You can still come to him and say, I didn't inspect the chair yet, but I'm willing to sit on you. I'm willing to come to you. I'm willing to trust you with what I do have. And so here's the little bit of faith I have. Start there. Start there. That doesn't mean your life's going to get better. The people we read about didn't have great lives. But they have a great life now. And one day they're going to have the greatest life ever with us because God said it would be that way. And there is no other religion on the face of the planet that promises that kind of confidence in what God has done. Every other religion says you better work harder, you better do more, so maybe you can get to heaven. And Christianity says there is nothing you can do to get to heaven. God has done it all. The question is, do you trust him? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for Hebrews and the writer that was writing to people who were struggling. They had, they had slid back into old ways and old patterns. They were hurting. They were confused. They were just tired of being persecuted and the mess. And this writer is writing to them to encourage them to say, don't quit. Come back. Believe on Jesus by faith. Father, I pray this morning, I know there are people listening online. I know there are people in this room that, that their heart is kind of getting tugged at right now. Father, I pray that like the people of the Old Testament that we read about and the people that they know in this room, like Isabel's testimony, that they would surrender to you today. With what little faith they have, they would come and say, I don't even know how to do this. But I surrender. Help me be who you want me to be instead of me chasing something I can never get. Lord, I pray they would do that today and they would feel and understand your love and your grace. They would believe your promises. And Lord, I pray they would tell somebody today. They would go to somebody and they'd say, help me. And Lord, I pray that the people in our church would take that seriously if someone comes to them, to come alongside them and help them to live in this grace. And if they feel like they can't, I pray they would go find another person in this church to say, come with me. We gotta help our brother and sister by faith. 
Lord, I thank you for the reality of these verses, the promises that you give. I pray that we would, by faith, have the hope of heaven deep within us. It would cause us to live our lives for you in your name. Amen.